Welcome to Pat Sherlock's podcast series, interviews with top mortgage sales leaders. Learn practical tips for improving sales management results. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Pat Sherlock. Today's topic is such a critical topic, conveying your company's vision to your employees. I'm excited to have a terrific expert today who's going to share his thoughts, Greg Giannopoulos. He is channel head at Alpha Mortgage, and he is responsible for the reverse mortgage. Greg has a long history in mortgage banking. He had his own company for over 20 years. Prior to that, he's done everything on the forward and on the reverse side. He was at Gateway American Bank. So I'm so excited to have Greg with us today. Hi, Greg. Hi, good to be with you, Pat. Thanks for having me today. Well, I appreciate you spending your time. Let's uh, get started and talk about this important topic. But before we jump into it, uh, talk a little bit about your own career as a manager and share with everyone, you know, how did you actually get into managing? Well, it wasn't by design. <laughs> so I, I started a company uh, where I had myself and then one or two employees. And over the course of about four or five years, that company quickly grew to 130 plus employees. Mm -hmm. And I was forced into managing and I did not have the skill set to be a manager. Well, was that shocking or? <laughs> yes, it was shocking. I, I, I went through the school of hard knocks. I had to get trained and develop skills that I didn't have as an entrepreneur. And Amongst other things, I quickly learned that just because someone is good in sales doesn't necessarily mean that's going to translate into being equally good as a manager. That's one of my favorite topics. So what was the best advice you ever got about managing? I would say the best advice I got about managing is that there are tons of managers out there in the marketplace, but there's not many leaders. And so... My objective became one of which I tried to invest in our staff and in our personnel in a way that they could be leaders at every position within the company so that every employee would be self-led even if they had no one to manage. So you don't necessarily need, in my view, anyone to manage to be a leader. Now, of course, those leaders that have folks to manage, it really helps. But I found that the goal for me was to have a good functioning employee base where everybody in every job and every position knew how to lead themselves. Where did you come up with this? Were the books that were really important to you or what was it that led you to this thought? There was one in particular called Failsafe Leadership. I'll give you the author if you like. Uh, Failsafe fail Leadership, Straight Talk About Correcting le Leadership in an Organization. That book is written by Linda Martin and David Munchler. There's a new edition that came out, I think, in 2019, but the original one was from 2003 that I had read. And that had a big impact on me because I, I quickly learned after hiring a consultant who introduced me to this book that the problem was really more with me than my staff. So I took that to heart, was introspective about it, and I paid to get the skills that I didn't have that were missing so that I can more effectively lead others and manage others. So when you look at all of this, you obviously did research and attended training efforts. What's the secret sauce in managing people that people miss? There's a big thing in my view, and, and I call it value ship. 
It's values-based leadership. It's values-based management. It is always operating within the framework of our values and bringing them to life. Not just talking about them going through an exercise off, you know, off-site and doing some heavy lifting for two or three days and then and then not living the values. It's operating and leading the company or your department or your staff within the framework of your of your values. And I, it's called values-based leadership. <clears throat> it may sound a little cliche, and it's kind of easy, I think, to understand academically, but it's much more difficult to implement on an ongoing basis. The greater the responsibility, the fewer the rights. So I had to be the one that was leading the charge in that effort. Wow, that's another great point. So when you were, you made the comment that it was a shock to you that the failure was in you. Was that, I talk about that for everyone, because I think every manager has has really faced this issue and it, it is somewhat of a wake-up call. Yeah, so when I was in production myself, in my business, I just assumed that just because I was good at that, that I could teach and train and mentor others and manage others to do the same. But managing others and then producing are, are two very different things, uh, and sometimes at, at odds with, the, with one another. It cost me a lot of money uh, in mistakes, and mostly those mistakes are due to the fact that uh, I hired the wrong people, and I spent too much time on the C employees instead of helping my B and A employees, and it was to their detriment and my loss because I lost some good talent as a result of that or sometimes lost some really good sales talent by elevating them to management positions. I mean, I can't agree with you more. And obviously in my own consulting practice, I mean, a lot of times that's what I'm there to do is to rechange their thinking that if you don't hire right, you therefore end up always correcting and our people problems are our biggest problems. So, so why don't you share, Greg, you know, the key practice that you keep coming back over all these years of your managing? It's for sure leading by example at a granular level. It's, it's, it's that. It's leading by example. So it's, it's making my own mistakes known so that others feel comfortable making mistakes because mistakes are just opportunities to improve your process, to improve people, to improve uh, knowledge, training, just all of it. It's okay to fail and, and to share that failure with your staff because as a business owner or now as a business manager, those failures and mistakes that I don't know about that keep me up at night. The ones that I do know about are fantastic because it gives me an opportunity to engage, correct, grow, and improve, not just myself, but others and the organization at large. So that's what I would say is the, uh, is the secret sauce. And to go along with that hand in hand, come to learn over the years that I, I can't really motivate anybody. I could maybe provide a spark of motivation. And I think a lot of managers, including those of us that come from the sales side first, just think we have the ability to motivate people. I've come to learn over the years anyway that I believe that motivation is something internal. So it becomes mm -hmm. even more important to hire people that are self-motivated rather than trying to train them to be motivated. I can teach people skills and knowledge and they can get experience under my umbrella but it's very hard to teach good habits, very good, to, very hard to teach positive attitude. And I would say that's the number one overarching recommendation would to be to hire those with a good positive attitude and then just create an environment that helps their internal motivation flourish.
Well, that's a great point for sure, which leads us to our topic today, conveying a company's vision to your employees. I know we can spend hours on this topic because certainly it's a key component of managing, and a lot of times managers don't do a good job of it. So why don't you talk about the corporate goals and how you convey them downward to your employees and and share with you kind of what works and what hasn't worked. I'd be happy to. It's sort of the area that I love to live in. I feel very strongly that if the employees don't know where we as an organization want to go, it's not fair to them to try to ask them to help us get there. The bus is going to Florida, but I want to go to California. You know, those are two different directions. So it's really important to share with clarity not just what the vision of the organization is, uh, but the goals that cascade down to achieving the vision. And the vision to me is not something that exists today, obviously. It's visionary. It's, It's the future. And it's one possible future that might be ours if collectively we work together through teamwork and collaboration, through successive cascading of goals and goal achievement, and then overcoming goals for which we have or obstacles for which we have not achieved those goals, uh, and identifying new obstacles to continuously move us in that direction of becoming the company that is outlined in our vision. And the way we breathe life into that is by using moments of truth. Every day within our organization, there are moments of truth between me and other managers, me and rank and file staff, and then rank and file staff and their peers. And every moment of truth is an opportunity for those employees, whomever is communicating, to align whatever the issue is with the vision that we have as an organization. You know, for example, our vision in part is to become the most trusted and most reputable reverse mortgage lender to which people and business easily and naturally flow. I share that part of our vision with you because when we start meetings or when we're dealing with an issue, We always start it with something like in keeping with our commitment and our vision to become the most reputable reverse mortgage lender to which people in business easily naturally flow, et cetera, et cetera. We bring it up daily. And it's not just me bringing it up. It's others bringing it up with each other. So it kind of defines the purpose, the reason for being. And it gives people the possibility to put aside their differences, their individual human differences, and focus on collaborating around the vision or the mission or even an individual goal or task. And it really helps promote teamwork and collaboration. Yeah, that is a great point, which leads me to my next question, that many times what I see at, at mortgage companies and and certainly a variety of lenders is that the vision is always defined as X number of volume. What you're talking about is more than volume. Yeah, and most people consider it, or many people I find consider it soft. Yeah, that soft stuff is is great, but what about the numbers? Well, the numbers are very important to me, but they come underneath the direction because you can have a lot of wasted productivity trying to swim up a stream that you just you just don't want to go there. And for example. I think every organization has to decide, are they production-driven or are they customer-driven? There's nothing wrong with either one, but decide what you are. We have decided that we're customer-driven. It doesn't mean that 
sales and production are not important. They just it just comes underneath serving the customer. So although we have a customer-driven organization, we also have goals and and production goals in particular. So those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Well, it's interesting you talk about deciding to become production-driven or customer-driven. Just in my experience, what I see in the mortgage landscape, a lot of discussion about being customer-driven, but I find it's just a PR strategy and not actually a strategy that the whole company is living up to. And I do find that particularly at some mortgage lenders, it really is, is almost a farce in a lot of ways. And then certainly the predominance is production driven. Talk about how did you get to this point of deciding, okay, you want to be customer driven? Well, I quickly came to realize even early on when we had some significant success because we had a tailwind, right? It was through no fault of my own that we did so well when we first started out in business. I was running with the current. How did you become customer driven versus production? Yeah. So on that point, so how do we how do we choose to do that? We had success early on because we were running with the current. I knew that we didn't have patents, we didn't have something secret, a secret product, a secret way of 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 making things, or we all had the same commodity product. So it was the way in which we were bringing this product to market. So I felt like to get a competitive advantage, maintain one and continue to improve upon it. We had to go that direction to be customer driven because the way we do things results in the reputation that we exemplify or or, are shooting for in our vision. So that's why we made that choice. It wasn't about production numbers out of the gate. It was about satisfying the customer so that we could build a referral business because the the cost of new customer acquisition was so expensive. Cost of referral business uh, a lot less expensive. So that's why we made that choice. And it was a, it's a smart choice, but I must tell you that certainly what I see, and I'm sure you see this too, is that when you look at producers, the book of business that they previously had, which is really the gold mine, is rarely worked. And as a result, it's always being defined as sending out some postcards every once in a while as being enough. I think CRMs in a lot of way have become a crutch that really doesn't satisfy this whole issue of being truly customers oriented. Well, for us in particular, it's about the customer not always being right, but being made to feel special. We all Mm -hmm. know that customers aren't always right, but every customer needs to be made to feel special. Because customers have choices, and that's one of our mantras in business is that, at least around here, customers don't need us, we need them. And every so often, I'll have a staff member say something like, well, they'll pay more somewhere else or somewhere else uh, because of the complexity of their scenario, they, they were likely not to have the, the outcome they were hoping for if they used another, if they used one of our competitors. And I'm like, that's really not true. It won't really change their life. So. We need customers, they don't need us, so customers need to be made to feel special. And then just some just some old-fashioned you know, human contact with the customer. Uh, one of our values is gratitude. Our customer needs to feel that, not just to be told that. They need to be made to feel like they're special, that we appreciate them, that we keenly understand and are aware that you have choices in selecting a lender. So thank you for choosing us. We'll do backflips to earn your satisfaction. 
right? So it's that sentiment that we have to cascade throughout the organization so that it happens with every internal customer who's serving our external customers. Because at the end of the day, we're not bulletproof. External customers can evaporate and we can lose them to a competitor that's ready to eat our lunch. So we'd rather be that competitor. So this vision that you're talking about, obviously it's not the normal vision within mortgage banking per se, although obviously there are companies like yourself that do align themselves with it. So how do you hire people that buy into this vision? Because a lot of times that may not be what the loan officer is really about. We sometimes don't. We sometimes make mistakes. And then folks that don't align with that vision uh, and that customer-driven model quickly become uncomfortable here. So they don't last here too long. Uh, we are really all about the customer here. I know that sounds cliche, but that's what we do. We use teamwork and collaboration for the benefit of the customer. And specifically in the market niche that we're in now in the area of my discipline, which is reverse mortgage lending now, we don't actually have to sell the product. We have to, we have to unpack it. So the product itself lends itself more to this customer-driven approach and is in fact becomes the sales process. But we, we, they don't stay around here long. Uh, I don't keep them here long, or they don't, they, don't, they don't join our company to begin with because during the interview processes, we, we quickly come to see that if they're production-driven, we're not going to hire them. Well, this, the time has flown by really fast today, and these are a lot of wonderful comments for sure. So if you had to wrap it up in the last few minutes, Greg, what would you want the takeaways to be for the, our listeners today? There's so many, but there's one thing in particular, I would say hire people with a strong, positive attitude. Do not succumb to the age-old failure of just interviewing people for their skill set. Positive attitude is a huge multiplier of customer delight or customer satisfaction. I would rather take somebody on who's a little bit raw or inexperienced with an off the hook on a scale of one to 10, nine or 10 in attitude and habits, as opposed to someone that has a nine or 10 in skills and knowledge, but a very poor attitude and poor habits. Those are the employees that have cost us the most over the years in terms of money and lost opportunity, because we as managers in, a in, a, in an environment that's, that's uh, you know, committed to teamwork, collaboration, and growth of the employee, you can take and leverage that positive attitude of an employee and teach them the skills and knowledge. And then someday you'll just have a seasoned staff of people that get it done and they know how to get it done. That, that's what I live for in business. Well, Greg, there are great words of wisdom. And I want to thank you today for sharing them with us. And I want to thank our listeners and certainly look forward to our next podcast. Thanks, Greg. Thank you, Pat. Have a great day. You too.